Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Amazon supply chain runs right through Hamilton. British Columbia has closed down nightclubs as COVID cases spike there. Could we expect the same here? And some have had COVID-19 and are still suffering from symptoms. They're called COVID long haulers. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You okay? You ready? You look like you're going to fall over. And the dog's going to bark. All right, get the show on the road. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The province has announced it is pausing any more reopening for four weeks. In support, I will put off my first haircut for another month. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Pretty soon this is going to take like a half an hour just to get the show launched. Here it is. It's 1226 and time for the news. Uh, yeah, good, no, no, it's not the case. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Week 26 of... Wait, is, is that... Will, is that coming from your end or my end? I'm not sure now. now. Now Will's just playing sound effects of my dog barking, so I don't know if it's someone's at the door or if he's just playing games with me. I'm, I, you know, to me, it's like a new doorbell. We, 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 we don't go by the doorbell. We just go by the dog barking. Uh, all right, enough of our uh, hysteria here. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there. Plus, uh, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, Amazon has decided they will be building uh, two new fulfillment uh, centers, one in Ajax, one in Hamilton. Here's what Norm Sheelan had to say, Director of Economic Development on Bill Kelly this morning, about what this is all about. So a fulfillment center is, is really where um, Amazon, I, I'm sure everybody during, especially during these COVID times, has probably uh, ordered for a package from Amazon. Well, this is where that package will actually uh, come from. So it'll be, uh, you'll have a, the one in particular that's going to be located here in Hamilton, uh, will be pick and packing uh, small items like customers, uh, like uh, books, electronics and toys. Uh, that'll, that'll come out of there. The, from there, the fulfillment center, those, those trucks will deliver to the delivery centers like the one in Stony Creek. Uh, there's uh, some others across the across the province, and uh, and from the from the delivery centers, that's that's where the, the individuals will come and deliver those packages to your house. So it's a basically a, a large scale warehouse where uh, these packages or these uh, products will be uh, will be that's the fulfillment center, and then the delivery center will basically get them to their final destination. All right, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glamborough, and is with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Not bad for the day after a long weekend, you know, during the middle of a pandemic, but I digress. Uh, so this is great news for Hamilton. This is uh, obviously in for the airport. It is. It's tremendous news, but it is just yet another announcement. And it's because, and if you look to really what's been happening in the past uh, couple of years, Hamilton has become a destination for uh, unique and um, actually really good high-paying jobs, and Amazon is is just the latest announcement, but it's great news. 1,500 jobs in Hamilton, good-paying jobs with benefits, jobs with pensions, jobs with opportunity. Uh, a lot of the younger people um, and people looking for transition are able to have, when they work for Amazon, have their post-secondary uh, 
education covered. So this is a, a really, really good opportunity for people who either are in Hamilton looking for work or want to move to the Hammer. Uh, and obviously great news for the airport, which uh, we all know is uh, obviously a, uh, a freight and service hub. I mean, obviously this, this is good news for their long-term survival as well. Well, our airport is the busiest overnight airport in Canada. And throughout the pandemic, it was one of the busiest um, regions, I'd say, well, certainly in the province, but I'd say across the country. Hamilton Airport was the recipient of a lot of the PPE that came in from around the world and was distributed not only across Ontario, but right across Canada. But again, this is the, this is our city is, is the, uh, our airport. Um, it is one of the busiest when it comes to cargo. If you haven't been to Hamilton Airport in a while, I would really encourage everyone to go and look at what's happening. It is on fire. We have had such expansion. Recently, KF Aerospace built a hangar partnering with uh, our college, with Mohawk College, to address the shortage of um, the trades. So they have a program that's offered at their space to train aerospace mechanics. And it's, it's you know, hundreds of good jobs there and opportunities to get into that field. DHL, another company right. that was actually thinking of leaving um, the, the province, I'd say, two years ago, instead, to, instead decided to stay. They've expanded by about $100 million. Their, their company already has uh, shovels in the ground. Walls are up. They'll be opening hopefully in the next year, within the next year. It's exploded, and you know we're very, very fortunate. While other airlines and airports have seen uh, plummeting in terms of numbers, Hamilton is just, uh, it's humming. I remember during the height of the pandemic and noticing that there was no air traffic in the air. And then all of a sudden saying to my wife, oh, look, there's a plane. And it was a FedEx plane. It was like really the only planes that were in the air. You brought up DHL. We talked about that uh uh, several months ago when they announced that they were coming. Does this spawn others from coming to those airport lands, coming to that area, and obviously expanding on what you're talking about? Absolutely. We mentioned DHL, uh, Kaofara Space. We have Cargo Jet. Cargo Jet is busy. When the planes come in, they're coming in from around the world. And usually during the evening, that's one of the advantages of Hamilton's airport is the uh, limited uh, restrictions on when planes can fly and land. So there, it's a it's a an airport that is receiving cargo when it needs to be shipped, which is overnight. And yeah, it it is it's becoming a magnet and a real hub, but for good reasons. We have affordable, for the most part. I mean, we can get into that whole other issue about affordable housing, but we do comparing it to other parts of the GTHA. We have a solid housing market with decent prices. We have good roads. We just you know, and we have these are good jobs. Really good jobs. One thing I have to work on, and it's uh, it's a big critical uh, problem going to the airport is Highway 6 when you get off of 403 yeah. because it goes right down to uh, a single-lane highway that isn't yeah. well lit. And you've got massive transport trucks on there all day long, and it's dangerous. And that has to be expanded. Um, I'm I'm lobbying hard to have that looked at. But it is a critical component in our movement of goods. And, you know, one of the things we didn't, I don't think people recognized the critical role Hamilton played until we needed PPE. 
and mm. most of it was coming right through our city. You know, you bring up a valid point here, Don, and we've talked about this many times since this pandemic started. I mean, everybody was wondering what when we get back to normal and then what the new normal is, because it's certainly not going to be what it was like uh, pre-COVID-19. And, you know, how some businesses have flourished, some businesses have fallen by the wayside. For years, everybody was trying to get air travel, passenger travel into Hamilton Airport, and, and you know, rightly so. But obviously, it's been the cargo that's the backbone. And, you know, post-COVID-19, that's what's, you know, what's been really sustainable and and keeping that supply chain open. So it's it's amazing how that's just swung around uh, in Hamilton's favor. As you mentioned, while other air travel is is, is pretty light, uh, cargo is booming. It's interesting you should say that. I, I've mentioned to you before, I've sat on a committee all summer, actually since uh, COVID, on economic recovery. It's called the Subcommittee on Finances and Economic Recovery, and we've met with stakeholders across across Ontario in every sector, small and medium-sized businesses, the tourism industry, and, of course, airlines. And it was so interesting. And, and as you said, air passenger service was the sexy service. That's what everybody thought yeah. we should be pushing. And people from Toronto at Pearson Airport were saying that, you know, they're struggling. They can't get passenger service. And, of course, Hamilton's kind of saying, well, don't start poaching us yeah. because we have this very, very, very vibrant, healthy subsector that has not only survived, but it has thrived through this. And we, we've seen, I mean, and there are, you know, consequences, of course, of, of um, having home delivery shopping, and that is the impact it has on uh, the storefront retail sector. Yeah. But the reality is a new generation is turning to purchasing online, and, and this is how it's delivered. It comes through our airport. Now it will be uh, coming through Amazon right at our airport, at our industrial park. But Hamilton's industrial parks, our, our business parks, have, again, yeah, they're this... this um, thriving sector of, of our city that we need to really focus more on. Uh, in my riding, I have a number of them. And if you look at Hamilton, of course, the airport, uh, by in Flamborough, by Waterdown, massive growth there. That's where yeah. CHCH will be moving. Yeah. We've um, a, num- a number of, again, I'm going to say high-paying jobs. You've got uh, Stryker, and they focus on medical equipment. Uh, Liberty, uh, they build parts, nuclear parts for um, planes and, and the nuclear industry. These are good, solid companies with big workforces. And uh, they're, they're solid economically, financially, but they also provide good wages and benefits. And these are the types of jobs that we, we should be celebrating, recognizing, celebrating, and really focusing on in terms of our economic uh, growth and recovery post-COVID. Um, obviously, as we see uh, the airport lands and, and the areas you're talking about, the business parks thrive. Obviously, the, the discussion moves to transportation. There's been chatter about a mid-peninsula highway, obviously the LRT discussion in Hamilton. How are we going to support all of this growth? Well, we have supporting it. One of the things they're going to have to do, and um, I was just seeing some of the um, comments in, in the spec about the urban boundaries, if we have that type of growth, we're going to see more people moving here for these jobs, and 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 uh, we should be encouraging that. But we're going to have to accommodate them. Some will want to live in vertical living in the downtown core, but of course, not everybody wants to. And you talked about co- post COVID nineteen, there is a there is a movement away from condo living and into a more yeah. detached 
house with a, a home office. Even in condos, though, people are looking for home offices. So, you know, this this is a new reality of the post-COVID world. But transit, um, people have to get to the airport. My son, years ago, he's much older now, but when uh, at Christmas time, of course, and this is when we're heading into it, that's the busiest season for cargo travel uh, at our airport. And there were a number of jobs for young people. And I couldn't, I'd have to get up in the middle of the night to drive him because he couldn't get a bus. Mm. So we have to look at getting buses to it. And the old argument about the mid-pen highway that has been on the books for absolutely ever, uh, it's now referred to as the International Trade Corridor, rightfully so. It would include Hamilton. I think it's a discussion that would have to come about. I don't think you'd see it totally solely on the backs of the taxpayer. It would probably be a toll system, but I can share with you it really isn't uh, something that we're focusing on right now, but I do believe it's something we're going to have to look at in light of the activity that is going on in our city. And again, you've got planes coming in, but the goods are moved on the roads. And and the 403 and the QEW are jam-packed every day of the week, all day long, going to Niagara is, you know, between yeah. moving goods across the border and our thriving uh, tourism industry, people are on the highway and it's jam-packed all the time. So it is something that we have to focus on. All right, can't let you go without uh, at least asking <laughs> your opinion about LRT because, you know, what the heck, what else are we going to talk about, Donna? So where are we with this? Uh, has any envelopes arrived on your desk? Uh, has any envelopes been sent well, to the federal government? Have a conversation, ever have a conversation, ever in our lifetime when we're not talking about what's the future of the LRT. Probably not for the last, probably not for the last 10 years and probably not for the next 10 years, Donna. Every time we'll chat Terrifying. about this. I know, I know. Um, So anything you can tell us, anything you can say of where we are, because everybody's saying, well, you know, it's not a bad idea. We're going to talk about it again. The premier said that. uh, The mayor said that. uh, We've heard rumblings from the feds that they're, yeah, yeah, whatever. Who's bringing everybody together? And let's all invite them over to your house, Don, and have a powwow on this, like figure out. (laughs) Oh, they can come on over, but I'll be, you know, I'll still say I'd rather see uh, bus service to the airport, quite frankly. Um, I mean, and that's my argument has always been we need to uh, build transit to take people where they are living and working. And right now it's it's in it's really in my riding. I'm, I'm blessed with that. But uh, in terms of where the LRT is today, we are awaiting the results of this technical report. And that will, from what I understand, go into detail as to what this billion dollars will get you. It gets you this in terms of LRT and this in terms of BRT. And what we have to remember, Scott, as you said, we've been talking about it for so, so long. The initial conversation included, was it 14 kilometers of LRT from Mm -hmm. McMaster University right out to Eastgate Square, but now that's $3.6 billion. So what does a billion get you? And if you've only got a billion, what does that mean? If you're looking for the additional funds, I cannot see the province. It's a billion and no more. So the money has to come from somewhere else. Now, the feds could come up with $2.6 billion, or I know that the private sector is interested. In, in, but again, uh, Leuna has, has been interested, but you still have to go out to tender. It can't just be, a, you know, you can't yeah. just say you get this and you don't. So that takes time. And... I can see us having this conversation down the road because there are so many moving parts. It's been so long. The amount has 
ballooned. It went from, as I said, I think initially the the mayor, at least when I was on council, was talking about an $800 million to, with a $200 million contingency to build the LRT, but it's 3.6, so it's a very different project. Um, but, you know, that's, I, again, I think it will go back to, you're going to hate me for this, but I think it will go back to city council to have to make a decision. Do they want it or not? And if they want it, how are they going to pay for it? You know, what? we could play a what if Hamilton here, Donna. What if Hamilton okay. had built that mid-potential highway or for, you know, that had gone through? What if the stadium mm-hmm. had been built by the waterfront? What if the LRT was already complete by now? I mean, you know, it just mm-hmm. seems we keep punting these projects down the road and they get more expensive. And at the end of the day, nothing really happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if, I think if the LRT had been built, um, you would have a, a very different looking downtown uh, it, it, it's going to take a few years. I mean, you have, you're from, I'm sure you've spent much time in Toronto and, you know, there are both mm-hmm. those who support and, and don't oppose LRTs because they do have positive, they bring some positive economic uh, opportunities, but they take their toll on local businesses. So depending on what side you want to, what argument you want to put forward, there's always evidence to support either. Uh, but what if, I think that the, if we hadn't built the Red Hill uh, Valley Parkway. There's another and, one. What if we hadn't have built yeah. that thing? Yeah, you know, I mean, because I don't again, this—I don't yeah. think we could get. I don't think our airport could could support the traffic. Yeah, well, there's there's another example of one that did get built, although you know some will yeah. question that. All right, years. Donna, we could go forever. Uh, Donna Skelly, MPP <laughs> Flamborough Glanbrook, as always. Donna, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. I want to meet your puppy one day. Yeah, well, bring your saddle. He's not so much a puppy anymore. You take okay. care, Donna. Uh, Hamilton, who has always been a cargo hub and, and always been a, a big uh, cargo airport, uh, always trying to, to flirt with bringing passengers in and, and getting some of that, now is realizing that, that obviously the supply chain in cargo is uh, not only now uh, the backbone of Hamilton, but it is also the backbone of the industry right now, as uh, all the other forms of air travel are slowing down as you know they're carrying passengers. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in uh, El Kafi Hassani, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and is with us now. El Kafi, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me, and I hope everybody's doing well. So your thoughts on this announcement that Hamilton is the home to one of these uh, new uh, Amazon hubs, uh, obviously this solidifies us as uh, one of the biggest uh, cargo airports in Canada. Absolutely. I think it's time that uh, Amazon had uh, set up a fulfillment center in, uh, in Hamilton. The uh, change in consumer behavior after COVID-19 and the increase on, in online shopping is uh, expected to be more than 200% increase has hastened that opening of uh, a center. And I think when I look at the two centers that they're adding, it makes uh, sense that uh, they're uh, adding one sort of to the east of uh, downtown Toronto, another one to the southwest. And that's where they're trying to uh, uh, reach out to customers within the one-day service in those growing uh, customer bases for uh, Amazon. So we understand with Hamilton, it means 1,500 full-time jobs in this fulfillment center. What more can, can you tell us about what a fulfillment center is, what these jobs might be like? Yeah, so th- these are 
compared to the uh, distribution center warehousing type of jobs, Amazon pays on average more. Uh, they're mostly for um, uh, order picking uh, and uh, packaging and uh, also dealing with uh, uh, some of the advanced technology that Amazon is introducing in some of their fulfillment centers like the uh, mobile robots that move stacks of shelves from storage to order sortation centers. And um, it's the the region, the Hamilton area in particular, they've been successful in getting the right of uh, labor that they're looking for, despite, I would say, some of the issues they had recently with how uh, they're handling the COVID-19 protocols. Uh, and and, and I, one other thing to add in terms of the numbers, uh, about 1,500 in Hamilton, 2,500 all in the two distribution centers compared to adding about 175,000 in the U.S. In proportions, that's not a lot. Uh, and so uh, it's expected that there could be more hiring in, in the next one year or two if the trend in the increase in e-commerce continues. El Coffee, we've tied, we've talked many times on this show about what life will be like post COVID nineteen, whether it's uh, education, the health in, uh, health uh, industry, or, or, or business in general. Uh, how much has business increased for the Amazons of the world during this period, as we've seen this switch, this sway in behavior? Yeah, it has increased significantly. So, especially if you look at uh, uh, grocery shopping which is something that uh, was a little slower than other items in the e-commerce world. It has jumped uh, just subsequent to some of the lockdowns in early March to about 250% in both Canada and the U.S. And so that's what fueled the hiring. And uh, Amazon has also on, uh, increased the use of crowdsourcing drivers. And so to make sure that they can uh, do the one day or the next day fulfillment. And it's, uh, as you said, it's not, it's the, the impact is there to stay, I believe, in uh, both the last mile delivery business, but also in other aspects of our life, whether it's education and uh, myself being a professor, we're just starting our term. And there's a lot of mm. changes that are happening. And I think what would um, what I uh, see in the future is that uh, people will adapt to the changes and uh, those good aspects of teaching online or uh, uh, more frequent shopping online, uh, they would stay with us. It's interesting how if you look back over the history of Hamilton Airport, uh, always been a cargo hub, uh, but always trying to woo in passenger travel and passenger service as well, and has struggled in and out uh, of that over the last decade or so. Um, but isn't it fascinating that post-COVID-19, uh, air passenger travel uh, less likely now, and it turns out that supply chain transportation, cargo transportation, is turning out to be the backbone of this industry. Absolutely, yeah. Although 
a lot of the cargo was also moving in uh, the belly of passenger airlines. And so right. that segment has been hit. So Pearson, for example, a lot of uh, airline like Lufthansa would, uh, is known to be a major player in that space. With the decrease in those flights, more has been moved to uh, cargo flights, and so that definitely benefited the, the, the Hamilton Airport. So along with uh, companies like DHL, which have built facilities or building facilities up there, uh, how much of this will be, uh, how much will cargo continue to be a priority at this airport? Is this, will this remain the priority over, over passenger air travel, do you think? Absolutely. I, and DHL has uh, growth plans before COVID-19 with the drive for e-commerce. I think Hamilton, the region, uh, can be a, a center for e-commerce fulfillment in, in this region, both for Canada and for the U.S. And we have the infrastructure, we have the benefit of the location, and that Amazon is moving uh, with a new fulfillment center and with the facilities we have already in the airport, including for cold storage, we have the infrastructure advantage to play that role going forward. El Kafi Hassini has been with us, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, talking about Amazon building a fulfillment center uh, here in Hamilton and then one in Ajax as well. El Kafi, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Be well. Bye now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about COVID-19, especially with numbers on the increase right the way across the country. Uh, and I guess over the weekend, about a 25% increase uh, had Dr. Tam uh, concerned. British Columbia has now announced that they are uh, going to close nightclubs. Nightclubs are closed effective immediately uh, and banquet halls as well. And uh, from what we understand, uh, eateries, that sort of thing, uh, able to serve liquor until 10 o'clock, and then that's it. Uh, if they're serving food, they can continue to stay open, but uh, that's it for the uh, alcohol as of 10 o'clock at night. To talk more about all of this and what it means and how did we get here, let's bring in Dr. Fiona Brinkman, uh, Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, thank you. I'm doing so, well. Your thoughts of where British Columbia is and the announcement yesterday that uh, banquet halls and nightclubs are, are going to be closed and uh, restrictions on liquor sales after 10 o'clock. Your thoughts on, on where BC is? Yeah, so BC is basically in a good place. We don't have a very high number of cases, but we do have a worrying trend. We have cases increasing at a rate that is a bit too much for comfort. So really the, the, the point here is to just keep cases under control. And uh, basically uh, one of the major um, ways that transmission is occurring is through nightclubs. And this is something that will help and uh, help us be able to do things that are also important, like keep schools open. Uh, we were just listening to the press conference with Premier Legault of Quebec and uh, Premier Ford. Premier Legault said that, in, now this is in Quebec, not in British Columbia, but he said that uh, the spike that they're seeing is less to do with hospitality industries like bars and such and more to do with private gatherings and, and large weddings and functions uh, within people's houses. Are you seeing the same thing there or are you seeing direct, relink, direct links to nightclubs, et cetera? 
Indeed, there is uh, private gatherings are another big concern. Uh, there's definitely been uh, cases occurring. It's all about avoiding that co- sort of close contact with a bunch of people that you don't know. Uh, there's really um, a, a need to do that, but also has been seen with nightclubs. Uh, the I can't emphasize enough, though, that each province is really its own uh, jurisdiction with its own um, public health system. And also, it's actually effective because each province is a little different in terms of how how the cases are are in terms of spreading, uh, the number of cases. As you know, Nunavut has no cases, for example. Um, many provinces, um, you know, in the east, uh, you know, there's a very stark difference, for, for example, between the number of cases in PEI and Quebec or Ontario. So it's really important to take a look at each individual province and each region, even in a province, and then implement appropriate health measures. Uh, Many, since this all started, have been looking towards B.C. uh, and seeing how they reacted. It sort of started there first and then moved across the country, I guess. Um, uh, And and B.C., pretty quick to to get a handle on this. So how do you explain the spike and and what has happened specifically over the long weekend that has resulted in these, these rollbacks? Actually, these, it's a great question. These have been occurring, this sort of gradual increase has actually been occurring for a while. And uh, unfortunately, it's important to appreciate that when we see cases now, uh, they're actually from a couple of weeks ago. So uh, basically mm-hmm. this weekend, there will have been people who got infected. Then they will start showing symptoms after uh, so many days. And then they will go to the doctor and then they will get tested and then uh, and then they will; those tests will get reported. So there's a real lag time between what we're seeing getting reported and what's actually happening on the ground. And so it, this is why it's very tricky. It's a very difficult situation. You're trying to balance making sure the economy is open, making sure uh, kids can get into school, which is absolutely critical right now uh, because we risk losing a whole generation of, of children if we don't get them in classrooms. But there's also this need to balance, of course, making sure cases don't get too high. And this is where uh, this balance is always being tweaked. And this is why I think, uh, you know, it's important for Ontario to sort of, uh, you know, put this sort of pause as they're doing on this further loosening of public health measures and then evaluate and continue to evaluate. This is what BC did. They sort of, you know, pause, they evaluated for a while, they see these cases occurring that include nightclubs, and so they've had to implement them. Do you see what is happening as, again, as I mentioned, that BC is sort of the initial indicator and, and the rest of the country kind of watches uh, watches what they do. Uh, do you see what's happening in British Columbia rolling across the country in the sense, and, and we see rollbacks in Ontario, as you mentioned, Ontario's already paused any more reopening for the next four weeks. Uh, that being said, do you see uh, the rest of the country getting to the point where, like BC, they'll have to roll things back for a period of time? Yes. Yeah, so actually, we're already seeing this sort of these this increase occurring across the country. Um, I should actually mention that the first case of uh, COVID nineteen was actually in Ontario. Yeah, that's and right. So, yeah. They, but I have to say, uh, definitely, BC has done uh, very well with keeping their cases under control. Um, many, most provinces have actually dealt with very, very difficult situations and been able to do a very good job, I think. However, um, you know, as these cases are increasing across the country, this is a very key time. I mean, I know people hear that a lot, 
and they're probably just so tired of like, oh, we got to keep, you know, please hang on and keep doing mm-hmm. this. Um, but it's very, very important right now because we're at this critical turning point where we're seeing these cases increasing. We're seeing people getting tired of implementing these, uh, you know, uh, physical distancing and not being able to get out and socialize more. And we really need to watch this because if not, we are going to end up in more of a lockdown situation. We are going to end up with having to implement uh, additional control measures. So I really do appeal to people who are sort of tired of all this to say, you know, there are vaccines being developed right now. There are solutions that are going to be happening and and I'm pretty confident are going to be implemented in 2021. But if we can just hang on this little bit longer uh, you know, uh, this will make a huge difference to basically the number of cases and overwhelming our healthcare system. Uh, lots of concern over back to school with the kids going back in September, uh, especially elementary and secondary. However, how concerned are you about colleges and universities, considering that seems to be the demographic where the new cases are are increasing uh, so quickly? Uh, are you concerned about that cohort who's heading back to universities and colleges? Yeah, so um, in Canada, we have a lot of colleges and universities that are basically doing uh, distance um, education. Mm -hmm. I'm actually starting my class uh, today uh, in about an hour, and it will be all online. And so uh, there's not really a concern per se about uh, the university environment leading to a lot of of cases because so many students will be um, not coming in, and those that are coming in for, say, a lab or something, uh, will be uh, there's sort of strict protocols that are being implemented. Yeah. However, um, the real concern is a social aspect. I mean, let's face it, university is a you know it's a wonderful social time, and it's really hard on some uh, students to basically not be able to get out and socialize. And so, uh, I do think there's a real concern there, and there's an appeal to people to sort of. Try to keep your group small because that makes a huge difference. If you can get together and socialize but do them in small groups, um, that can uh, really help keep the cases down and avoid them ending up in a situation where they basically lose a lot of their freedoms. And they're going to lose more if they don't keep it under control. Dr. Fiona Brinkman has been with us, Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, talking about British Columbia and them, uh, for a a period of time anyway, uh, shutting nightclubs and banquet halls and restricting the service of liquor or the serving of uh, alcoholic beverages uh, after 10 o'clock at night. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Uh, Let's move on. And, you know, we've certainly talked uh, about lots of people who have uh, and even had some on the air who have uh, had COVID-19 and survived and lived to tell the tale uh, of it. Uh, we certainly know that uh, the toll that it has taken on long-term care and uh, seniors' facilities and such. Um, but, but many, especially younger demographics, have got the disease and then recovered. Some have said, well, they were asymptomatic, didn't even really know they had it. Others have, of course, had a, a much tougher time, uh, including those that have, I guess, for all intents and purposes, gotten past uh, the disease, but are still suffering from some symptom of some sort. 
uh, while others are asymptomatic. They're called COVID long haulers that even though they are testing negative uh, months later, they are still uh, facing symptoms of the virus. To talk more about this, Susie Golding is with us, founder of COVID long haulers and is with us now. Susie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So talk about COVID long haulers, how this involved you and, and how you got to where you are. Right. Well, I first started um, symptoms of having COVID on March the 21st after having a, a quick visit to the hospital for a screening test two days prior and started off with a very mild sore throat that four days later turned into a horrendous, very strange illness that was going to progress for months and with many different symptoms involving my uh, ear, nose, throat, uh, gastrointestinal, uh, heart, and later down the line, suffering and uh, with neurological symptoms. Um, I did go to the hospital in June um, as I was worried that these symptoms didn't seem to be going away. Um, from what we were all told, this was an illness that was a respiratory disease and that it, it should, uh, if you didn't have a serious case and end up in the hospital, we were told to shelter at home and manage our own symptoms uh, and that they should go away within a few weeks. Um, so I started to wonder what was going on with myself and if I could, in fact, have COVID. And so I went to the hospital, had a diagnosis from a doctor who, uh, you know, listening to all my symptoms, said that, yes, you probably did have COVID. Um, and let's just give you a test. It's probably going to be negative because we're testing you two months after your original, the, the original onset of symptoms. But we'll do mm-hmm. the test. It will probably come up negative, um, which it did. So this left me wondering what was going on, um, led, led me to researching online and realizing that the symptoms that I was having were the same as, as symptoms uh, that people were diagnosed with and um, with COVID, who were having a positive test, and that there was a big demographic of people who were being missed um, in the tallies uh, of the percentages. What's happening is that there's a death rate and then there's a recovered rate, but the recoveries are not being followed. And so what recovered means, it means that you just have a negative test when in fact you can have symptoms and not be back to your normal self pre-COVID um, and suffering many debilitating symptoms being termed as recovered. So this is where we're at. Uh, I made a support group, uh, which has quickly you know, managed to gain about uh, 3,500 members now. And we're all people that are suffering from these symptoms. So were you initially hospitalized when you felt you had this? No. So I originally was termed as a a mild case. Uh, So we were told to shelter at home and manage our symptoms unless you had severe respiratory issues that you needed help breathing and needed help, uh, you know, needed hospitalization. So there were thousands of us who fell ill um, and stayed at home and managed our symptoms with basically uh, Gatorade and and uh, aspirin or, you know, whatever our home elixirs were. Um, We're suffering from uh, horrendous symptoms that weren't... So how are you you feeling now? What are are the sort of symptoms you're feeling now? I'm living with symptoms of neurological, um, brain fog. uh, I have a very forgetful memory now. I can't seem to really uh, find words and uh, put together thoughts. Um, It's very... It's, it's very strange and it's hard to describe. Uh, I have tremors at night. 
um, that feel like my body is shaking. I suffer from tachycardia um, in my heart. Uh, I'll be sleeping and just wake up out of uh, no reason with my heart at a resting, you know, rate of 170 beats per minute. I have all kinds of gastrointestinal issues, um, insomnia, and uh, the, you know, brain fog. It's just it's very hard. And and my list of symptoms pale in comparison with some of the symptoms that other people are having with, you know, enlarged lymph nodes. Um, some people having blood clots. Some people have stroke. Um, pink eye, hallucinations, um, joint pain, dizziness, uh, the list just goes on and on and on. We actually did a poll in the group um, and came up with uh, 100 symptoms that, that people have been suffering from. And Susie, you've never tested positive for the disease. That's right. So uh, what's happened is the PCR test is reliable as long as you have it within the right time frame. Uh, which is 8 to 10 days, I believe, after your symptom onset. So it's a really tight window uh, of time in order for you to be able to actually have a positive test. Now, if you had got a positive test, I mean, would that have changed anything? I guess you just confirmed yes. that you have it. Exactly, uh, which makes it a lot easier to get uh, help from doctors, Um you know, as far as getting involved in research and, and getting the right. help that's needed. Let me ask you this, Susie. How does your doctor know, or does your doctor, has he confirmed or she confirmed that you actually had it when you couldn't test positive? Why do they think that perhaps that it is COVID-19? Right. Well, I just exhibit so many symptoms, um, the right symptoms at the right time. Uh, so, yeah, just the, the case, the symptoms that I'm having are very similar to uh, symptoms that people would be having who had a test of, of a positive result. So we're getting symptoms, people who have gotten the negative uh, test result, but having all of these symptoms, doctors are diagnosing us with like a clinical um, COVID. So how does this, how does this affect your ability to function daily? Like, for example, how are you feeling right now? Right. Thank you so much. Uh, it's terrible. It's very debilitating. People don't understand that this affects us uh, on a day-to-day basis. If we're not able to go back to work, we're not able to function like we used to uh, pre-COVID. You know, these are debilitating symptoms that were coined as a, a mild case, and we're not able to, to do things as we used to. I haven't um, done any kind of, um, sorry, <laughs> I haven't done any kind of physical activity for five months now. I'm a very active mom to a 12-year-old boy, so his life is suffering now, too, because I can't do anything. All I do is sit at home and rest because I'm trying to give my body the break that it needs to recover. So we're all living with these debilitating symptoms. Um, some people are having problems breathing on the daily. Um, so, yeah, people are not being able to return to work and, and are really quite ill still and then being termed as recovered. And what, what about your health prior to COVID-19? What was it like? Yeah, my health prior to COVID-19 was pretty good. I'd say I didn't have any kind of underlying issues as far yeah. as, you know, heart issues or diabetes or anything like that. I had a, a pretty full life. I I lead a, a very active life. Like I said, I was on the sea patrol. Uh, my, my son, um, I'm a, a florist. I'm on my feet all day, every day and carrying heavy things. And I was very active. And now I've become uh, just really a shell of, of what I was used to be able to do. So it's very frustrating. Um, it's a little bit depressing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's just 
the, 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 the weight of not knowing if this is ever going to go away mm. and if we're ever going to be able to get back to how we were pre-COVID and get back to our lives. I mean, I sit around and I, I, I can't do much and I have to really worry about tasks even in the home, you know, as far as cleaning, getting things done. Um, if I expend a lot of energy, I can be rest assured that I will have to, you know, spend five or six hours recovering, if not sometimes days. So, so any idea how you may have uh, how you may have come in contact with this or a- anything to lead you to believe uh, where it came from? Well, I'm pretty sure that um, I went to two days prior to my symptoms starting up. I went to a hospital, and uh, at that point in time, this was before people were wearing masks. So I think that's where I contracted it. And and you just you were at the hospital for an unrelated thing, and uh, you know my mother always That's says right. you catch yeah, lots in the hospital. She screening. says I had right. a yearly screening at the hospital, and it's funny. I wondered if I should go or kind of question it, and thought, no, I better go. It's important. So I went, and then two days later, I started out with my symptoms, and I really didn't think that it could be COVID because they were so mild. And then on the fourth day, sort of all it all went crazy, and and the symptoms came on very strong and acutely and it was unlike anything that i'd ever experienced before Susie, if people want to get a hold of covid long haulers and communicate what do we do right so we're a facebook organization and you can just become a member it's called covid long haulers support group canada all right Susie golding has been with us founder of covid long haulers uh people who have uh, either asymptomatically or been tested or not tested, uh, suffering from symptoms long after uh, the disease tests negative. Susie, thanks for the time. Good luck with all of this. Be well. Hey, thanks, Scott. And everybody stay safe out there. Wear a mask and social distance. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Lots of chatter this week, obviously, in and around uh, heading back to school and the concerns that parents and kids and such have. Uh, Children that participated in a Brock University study on the pandemic said that they missed aspects of school but are worried about becoming sick or bringing the virus home to families. To talk more about all of this, Rebecca Rabbi is with us, Brock University Professor of Child and Youth Studies, and is with us now. Rebecca, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Yep, for sure. So what, what, did you, what, what surprised you about this study? What stands out for you? Oh, that's a huge question. Um, a couple of things stood out for us. One was um, how many kids during the, especially the initial stages of the pandemic, um, were getting involved in all sorts of like artistic activity um, to keep themselves busy. Um, I, I think that we were maybe, you know, struck also by how um, knowledgeable they were about the pandemic and the things that they needed to do to stay safe. Um, and we certainly were struck by um, how mixed their experiences were. It's really hard to generalize because your your personal circumstances um, and the kind of online schooling that the kids were doing in the spring really shaped so much of their views. So let's talk to what you brought up first, and that's uh, uh, obviously initially the kids, and I remember this, it was funny, we forgot about this, but <laughs> during the first weeks of the pandemic, it was, I think people were baking bread, uh, and you know, there's all these things on, online about what you could get your kids to do, and all of these fun little doodads and stuff. At the beginning of all of this, did we think that, yeah, this is just a you know a few week thing, and then we'll be out the other, day, the other end. When this all started, did we... we 
we didn't think this was going to last half as long as it, it is lasting, did we? No, I mean, one of the advantages of the study that we did is that we touched base with the same children um, at frequent intervals over every two weeks from about the beginning of April um, into the beginning of the summer. And um, so we went sort of through this process with them, which included for a chunk of time, them thinking that they might be going back to school at the end of June, mm. right? So we were saying, well, how do you feel about going back to school in June? <laughs> and then, of course, we were also with them when they learned that they weren't going back to school in June. So how disappointed were they they were not going back? Because, you know, especially, again, I remember as we approached May and June, they, you know, there was uh, optimism that maybe we'll get them back for at least the last month. Mm-hmm. Uh, how disappointing was that? You know, they were really, really mixed um, in terms of their feelings about it. Um, You know, a lot of kids were missing their friends and they were missing peers, you know, like people who weren't necessarily close enough to be connecting with over social media, but, you know, the children that they were seeing normally in school every day. So there was sadness about that, but they were also, many of them were worried about the virus. They they understood why going back to school might be risky. some of them, there was also maybe a bit of difference of opinion between some of the children and their parents about whether they should go back to school or not, where the parents were saying, I don't think you'll be able to go back, and some of the kids were disappointed about that. But then other ones were, well, or and other ones were, um, some of them were really enjoying not being at school, which I think we have to pay attention to as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, enjoying the pandemic a little too much. Um <laughs> You know, we've heard many people, we've certainly heard the experts say, you know, it's important, it's imperative the kids get back to school. This is stunning their development. Uh, you know, even though this, you know, one day blends into another, it has been six months since we've been doing all of this. Uh, what is, how will this make a dent in their development? I mean, in a lifetime, we're looking back at this, it's, it's you know, it's only six months, it's a year, although afterwards it will change everything. What kind of dent is this going to make in their development? Right. Uh, That's such a tricky question as well. Um, You know, during that time that the children were off, a lot of them were doing all sorts of other things that I think we could see as important also to their development, right? Um, You know, like learning new skills, um, even things like cooking and photography and and stuff like that. Or even just learning how to cope with a crisis like a pandemic. This is the first crisis of a privileged generation. And how to experience boredom, what to do with that. Um, Although, you know, really it, it depended so much, you know, some of... I mean, there were kids with loads of siblings who um, were not lonely at all, and there were kids who were, you know, on their own, and their parents were working, who um, were much lonelier. Um, it depends so much on what kind of living space they were in, um, in terms of, you know, did they have, like, sort of some freedom to roam? Did they have a yard to play in, or were they trapped inside, like, a hot apartment? That These kinds of things would make such a big difference for um, their experience, too. Many have said, you know, kids are resilient. Kids live through war. They're, you know, whatever the norm is, because we were often, we were talking about, you know, especially the kindergarten kids that are going to school. Uh, they're starting their first school experience behind a mask, and who knows how long that's going to last. What about the blanket statement, kids are resilient, they'll get through this? You know, um, I think that there's really something to be said for that, that, um but I do think that it depends so much on the child's circumstance in terms of what they had to be resilient with. 
Um, And so, you know, it's sort of easy to say that, you know, if if we're saying, well, you know, this one child couldn't, you know, I don't know, do their gymnastics or something. But for some, it was really, really tough or it has been really, it still is really tough. You know, we've got kids out there who have, you know, compromised immunity systems, for example. Um, And there are some who had a really hard time online, you know, like they had trouble answering questions and that they couldn't, you know, some kids had parents to turn to for guidance and some kids their parents weren't as able to help them right so i it's yeah. not sort of across the board but certainly i think children have learned loads during this time that's valuable what have they learned that is valuable because again we we miss that sometimes uh, and, and and lots of times we don't learn those lessons till after we're out of it um i think that there's been a lot of learning about um for it, well, okay, so it depends again on the child and the age of the child. Sure. I mean, I think some have learned um, that they value school more than they may have thought. Yeah. Um, certainly, <laughs> uh, many have learned that they value their friends and peers immensely. Um, they've learned how to adapt to being um, bored and having to sort of figure out new things to learn. Um, They've also learned, you know, one thing that really struck us also was how much um, autonomy um, a number of children had over that time. And, and we are curious about how they're going to deal with their autonomy being um, curtailed quite a, bit, quite a bit now as they go back to a really restrained schooling environment. That's interesting. Yeah, they've been out of the cage for six months. What's <laughs> going to happen now? Um, you know, we've certainly heard, uh, you know, many will go back to World War II. Uh, post-World War II, the baby boomer generation, many have called it the greatest generation rebuilding after what happened uh, post-World War II. With what you have said and the young people and the positive things out of this that they've had to learn, with it being the first crisis of a privileged generation, which includes my own, not just the young people, uh, will this generation, are the people that are going to university for their first year or going to high school for their first year this year, are they the next greatest generation because they've had to live through this they've had to adjust their lives they'll be a part of the recovery um that is an impossible question to answer but i, I always ask questions that are impossible that's an impossible question but i do <laughs> but don't you think i i this is what i say because i've got a daughter i've got a daughter that's entering university and obviously doing it online from home she's upstairs right. now but again you know and and the, you know they lost their prom they lost yeah. their graduation you hear all that story right and you know I, i've said to her and her friends you guys are at the cusp of something great here because the recovery is where the opportunities lie just like after any other crisis and I think some of them are starting to understand that. So, again, I know it is an incredibly complicated question, but they are set up for some very interesting opportunities, aren't they? Absolutely. I, you know, I mean, none of us has a crystal ball, right? And we don't know exactly what will happen. But I definitely would agree that for a number of young people, this experience has been pivotal, um, pivotal in terms of shaping how they sort of interact with the world and think about um, even what it means to be social in the world. Uh, so I, I was just reading an article that was talking about how, you know, there's some real worries about um, this sort of gap in children's education that's happened. And, and, and I understand that absolutely. You know, um, I have a, a child as well, and, you know, like certain kinds of skills have definitely deteriorated. But, but I also see possibilities absolutely for resilience and, um, and, and lots of growth in the future. I mean, I think it also depends on how long 
things go. Yeah, right? We yeah. don't know how long they're going to stay in school right now. But you you bring up a very valid point, and I heard you know parents complaining about this as the kids started to go online towards the end of last year, and obviously what we're going to start with the the beginning of this year, and uh, you know again uh, as you said you, you know parents are worried that they're losing some of the academic year. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the kids will by far remember what they've learned from COVID nineteen than what they ever lost during the last few months of that year. The real lessons are the Life lessons here are they not do those not outweigh the academic lessons at this point I, I really truly think it depends so much on the child and the child's yeah. particular experiences of how it's gone for them um, but I absolutely agree with you that there there's been learning and 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 I do think that it will really change many children's outlooks on things as we go forward we, uh, pre-COVID-19, very divisive world. We see it in our politics. We see it all over the world. Extreme this, extreme that. Uh, do you think this, with the help of the younger generation, will unite us, will make us realize uh, we need to we need to understand what's important, not necessarily what's fashionable, that we're better when we unite, not divide? Well, that would be really great. Um, I think that for that to happen, there maybe needs to be a bit more attention to like how the experiences of the pandemic have been unequally distributed. Um, I mean, really, uh, a, a family's financial situation, their living environment, the um, capacities of the parents, um, these kinds of things have really shaped. Um, I mean, we know even in terms of which communities mm-hmm. are 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 experiencing the harshness of the pandemic more significantly. So, I, I mean, yes, if we can attend to that and recognize that, certainly. But um, but sometimes I think that we're not noticing that part. Hmm. Rebecca Rabbi has been with us, Brock University Professor of Child and Youth Studies. Children that participated in a Brock University study on the pandemic say they missed aspects of school and are concerned about getting sick. Rebecca, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks for chatting. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.